The blog pot contains language and content that some people may consider unsavory. So if you don't like content or bad language, then the blog pot is not the place for you. Now entering the blog pod. everybody and welcome to the bloke pod i'm gj and with me is the man who has the cure for your insanity action jackson what's up world how are we doing so action jackson been a big couple of weeks in sport what's stood out for you um well i guess the number two teams uh, the top two teams in world cricket both getting whitewashed uh, pakistan doing in- england 3-0 over in the uae and australia doing india 4-0 here down under well both stood out for me and um, possibly the greatest tennis final I've seen in my lifetime. Novak Djokovic defeating Rafael Nadal in five epic sets uh, over in Melbourne. That was definitely a, a match to remember. So uh, with all of that information, if you're going to pick a winner for the, uh, for the year 2012 so far, who's your money on? Oh, look, it's got to be Djokovic because I think after last year, the big question was could he back it up again this year? And also, couldn't Nadal actually find a way to beat him? I mean, he lost in, in I think it was six finals last year to Djokovic. Um, and in this final in the Australian Open, he, he threw the kitchen sink at him. He went to the bathroom and threw the bathtub at him. He went to the laundry and threw the laundry sink at him. And Djokovic still won. I mean, it, it is very hard to see Djokovic losing to anyone this year after overcoming that sort of effort from Nadal. And given his record last year, though, that's probably not that surprising. I mean, he lost, what, three games last year? Yeah. I mean, I actually think at the moment the best thing for Roger Federer would be to drop to number four in the world and play Djokovic in the semi-finals of the Grand Slam rather than the finals because I think Djokovic actually matches up worse against Federer than he does against Nadal. I think Federer is probably the player who has the best chance of beating him this year. But at the moment, while he's ranked number three, he's always going to lose to Nadal in the semi-finals and not get the chance to play Djokovic in the Grand Slams. Yeah, so it's been interesting year so far. The one that I'll throw into the mix as well is the result in the Super Bowl, which to some people was a little bit surprising, but if they've been tracking the form lines of the NFC and the AFC, it probably really wasn't that surprising that the Giants ended up beating the Patriots. Uh, even though the Giants had a 9-7 and record and the Patriots were 13-3, and the Patriots had actually only beaten one team with a winning record all year, so mm. the fact that they actually got there was uh, was a surprise in itself. But it brings me to who is probably the biggest loser so far, which is uh, Tom Brady. And Anything I'm, personal in this, Jeez? Well, <laughs> yes and no. I think it's actually really interesting that the fallout from the Super Bowl so far is that Wes Welk has taken a lot of the heat for the catch that he dropped. Uh, particularly, I mean, the uh, Boston company that through a whole heap of butterfingers out there in tribute to Wes Welk was <laughs> probably not probably not quite in the in the right spirit of supporting your team and all of that. And Tom's wife Giselle also yeah, came out yeah, and fired up, a few shots. Game, yeah. But I mean Tom himself didn't really have he I mean he played well in the first half, but when the game was there to be won in the fourth quarter, he had two plays that he, he would normally make quite easily that he didn't. I mean the, the throw to Welker 
Welker would normally catch something like that, but it was really high, high wide right. And it, it forced Welker to kind of stop and stretch up to his right to make the catch. And it wasn't an easy catch, and it, the, it should have really been an easier ball for him. But I think more concerning was the fact, I think in the fourth quarter, he actually went four for 13. Mm. So when the game's there to be won, you want the big players to step up. And Eli Manning did it. He threw. Yep. Eli Manning could throw the ball into a phone booth, and Tom Brady <laughs> looked like he couldn't throw it into the water there for a while. So, but I mean, look, the the Brady thing. It's it's interesting. He's only two quarterbacks have ever gone to to the Super Bowl five times. Him being one, and and John Elway being the other. And he had a chance to really forge his legacy once and for all. There. I mean, he's had some phenomenal years, but it's interesting that he had the 16 and zero season, which mm. became 18 and zero. Where I mean, he he threw up the biggest stink bomb in that game. Yeah. And uh, this year there was an, there was an opportunity there for him to win that one as well, and he he couldn't come up with it. And I think he's 34 or 35 now. How many years do you think he has left? Probably a couple, but are we going to see the same Tom Brady? Mm. It's it's interesting. It, the the whole yeah, you know, I'll, I'll say this hand on heart. I think that Tom Brady's whilst he's had some pretty amazing accomplishments, people who are coming out and saying things like. He's the greatest quarterback of all time and all of these things. Uh, it's not true. I, I just don't see it. Mm. And uh, as I've mentioned to you before, yeah, he's been to five Super Bowls. His record's three and two, and Elway's is two and three. So, but, you know, to be perfectly honest, Brady's probably played well in one and a half of those. Super- he's got two Super Bowl MVPs. One of them was a joke. The only reason why I got that was because I couldn't give it to the uh, entire New England defence. <laughs> He slowed down the St. Louis Rams, but uh, the only game where he really, where I thought he really has really played well was in the uh, in the Carolina Super Bowl, and he had to because that game Jack Delholm on the other side was throwing darts, and it was became a massive shootout. But the thing that everybody forgets about Brady, sure he's won three Super Bowls, sure he's been to five. Every single one of those games has been decided by less than a touchdown. Mm. If Adam Vinatieri hasn't been clutch and made field goals in the last second in two of those games. If the tuck rule ruling in the Oakland game in 2002 went the other way, and it was a line ball decision which way that call went, Brady could have could have zero Super Bowls. Yeah. So Elway Elway threw a couple of stink bombs in there, but he he played really well in one Super Bowl that they lost. The guy on the other side went 21 for 25 or 22 for 25. I can't remember exactly what it was, but basically had the game of his life against him. Mm. Elway's teams were much like Brady's teams from this this year. I mean. It was an accomplishment for Brady to, to get that squad to the Super Bowl, but I think that that was more a function of a weak AFC than anything else. From my perspective, the four best teams this year were, were Green Bay, 15-1 record, you have to admit that. New Orleans and San Francisco both had 13-3 and records, which was similar to New England, but tougher conferences, tougher, tougher divisions. And I thought the Giants, the Giants, much like the, uh, the Green Bay Packers last year, they'd had early injuries. They got their team back just at the right time and they got hot when it mattered. And, you know, you can't deny the fact that they beat the, uh, they beat the, the New Orleans Saints. Well, no, they didn't beat them. Sorry, they didn't beat the New Orleans Saints. They beat the Green Bay Packers and then they beat San Francisco on the road in both situations. And they beat the Patriots. They, the best came at them and they all fell. Would you say there needs to be a change to the structure then, given that those of those four best teams in the league that you just mentioned, only one of them actually made it to the last day of the season? Well, I mean, it's a function of the division scheme. It's always the way it's going to be. But uh, I guess going back on attack, you know, I've talked about Tom Brady being a loser. I think that the guy on the other side became a pretty significant winner in all of this. Eli Manning, he's... Uh, 
He's now surpassed his brother and he's won two Super Bowls. I think the the, uh, the interesting Eli Manning story is is that before the start of the season, he was asked on radio whether he felt he was in the same league as, as the guys like the Tom Brady's and all of that. Did he feel he was an elite quarterback? And everybody, you know, and he said, yeah, I feel I'm an elite quarterback and now that I'm at that level. Everybody laughed at him. Well, Eli got the last laugh. And yeah. as New York people like to say, you can't spell elite with E-L-I. <laughs> very nice, very nice. Well, I mean, the other loser of the year for me, I guess, would have to be Andrew Strauss. I mean, as much as I admired his innings in that last test against... Oh, sorry, in the second last test against Pakistan where he made 50 in the last innings, you would have to say that his record this season, just in terms of batting average, has been quite abysmal. And although Alistair Cook has taken the pressure off himself slightly with that 100 he made in the first one day against the Packies, you'd have to say having someone having an out-of-form opener is never a good thing in cricket because it invariably means that you're always one down for not many and you're number three and then perhaps you're number four as well are always coming out with the team under pressure, not many runs on the board and always one or two wickets down. Could you say the same with Everinda Sawag? Well, absolutely. I mean... The guy made 200 runs on a in a one-day match on a pitch where you know it was probably easy to underarm the ball from the wicket over to the square boundary for six. It's it's an interesting one, isn't it? It really comes down to the difference between playing in India and playing um, overseas, and I think South Africa have shown so far over the last few years that they're a really good travelling side and now if they beat New Zealand 3-0 in this uh, upcoming test series they'll be the number one team in the world whereas I think all the other teams in the world bar none really have shown that they really struggle in conditions other than their own. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about Sawak is I've heard he hasn't made a test entry on the road in four years. And I think he's only made, in his entire career, I think he's only made two outside the subcontinent, I believe. There was one in Melbourne and one in Adelaide. I believe there was, the, I think there was another one in, in Multan, which was, you know, technically not at home, but it's still sort of subcontinental conditions. But, you know, it really shows he's a bit of a flat track bully, really. Yeah, and I mean, what, why do you think that is? I mean, is it, is it his technique? Is it? I think his temperament has a lot to do with it. I mean, in those games where he's come out and just played the Australians hat to all corners, he's had this sort of almost nonchalance about his batting, and I think when he has that sort of attitude, a lot of the time when he's sort of either, if, if you miss, I'll hit, basically, saying, you know, if the bowlers aren't going well, then I'm going to take them to all four corners. He's had a couple of instances where the bowlers haven't been able to get the job done. Whereas I think in India, on those slow batting wickets, a lot of the time, once you get your iron there, you're always going to make a big score. Well, I mean, I thought his, his innings where he was the captain, the second innings in Adelaide, I thought that mm. was bordering on ridiculous for mm. somebody who is meant to be leading your team, yep. given that they had five sessions to bat, yep. to, to basically come out swinging for defences right from... Uh, Ball one, yeah. It, I mean, it's it's not enough at times to say, well, that's just how he. Plays. I think he knows no other way, though. I don't really think the problem he has is that with. I mean, you look at someone like the the, uh, the recently retired Andrew Simons this week. He he actually had a fairly solid defensive game when he chose to employ it. So that when when the bowlers were on top and he wasn't he wasn't doing that well, he could sort of fall back on his defensive technique and actually use that to tough it out. Whereas I think someone like Brenda Sayway, if plan A doesn't work, he, he very rarely has a, a fallback position, basically. So, I mean, what do you do if you're India? 
Well, I think it's very clear, basically. You've got to drop at least two out of Tendulkar, Dravid and Laxman. You've got guys like Rohit Sharma and Virat Kohli and even someone like Suresh Rayner who has a, a, you know, a very decent record in the one-day game. I think it's time you've really got to give them a chance in the, in the test format. And I think for someone like Sachin Tendulkar, who has been such a great player for a long time, but this obsession with his 100th century, when he does invariably get it next season, when they're playing two years, you know, they've got two years of test matches now at home, and I'm, I have no doubt that he's going to bring it up at some stage. But for me, it'll be a complete anticlimax now, because he's failed to bring it up in the eight test matches against England and Australia where it would have actually mattered. And I think I was reading somewhere that since he made his 99th and his 100th, 100th, guys have made like eight or nine centuries. So yeah. it's, a pretty, it's a pretty lean drought for somebody yeah. who's had so much international success. And I think the biggest reason behind that has been, um, look, they've been high-pressure series away from home. He's had to play England in England and Australia in Australia, which are, you know, you'd say two of the toughest tours there are for an Indian team. And the fact that he hasn't been able to get it done in those tours basically means now when he does get it, it'll be sort of a hollow accomplishment because, he, yeah, he hasn't been able to bring it up. So a series that really mattered. So given that the, the number two, we've touched on it briefly, given that the number two team has actually played like number two in their last eight away tests between England and Australia, what's next? So if you're the, uh, the chairman of the, the Indian board, BCCI. the BCCI, apart from killing 2020 cricket, which I know you'd love to do, what would you do? Well, look, I think this is the biggest problem facing Indian cricket. They're not really planning any strong action like that because they know that in the next two years they're going to play plenty of test matches at home, they're going to score 650 runs in the first innings and I think a lot of the Indian public are going to forget about these last two, two seasons. For me, as Steve Waugh once said, there's a reason they call it test cricket and the reason is that you want to be tested against the best in the world and in the toughest conditions in the world and I think Unfortunately, given the way the Indian team have now got two years um, playing in their home conditions and on favourable tracks and that, I don't know that they will, that will actually see any action. And that's the same reason why, at the end of this series, the Indian board have denied that there's any need for a, a, you know, an overhaul of the team or any review of their performances. Yeah, there's a reason for that. They're protecting their own, mm. they're protecting their own backs and they're well, protecting their own walls. Well, I, th- I think the biggest problem is no one wants to be the bad guy and drop any of these three stars of the Indian team. No one wants to be known as the guy who ended Dravid's career or the guy who ended Laxman's career. Whereas, yeah. based on form, I mean that's a fair it point. Ha- I mean, it look has at what, to be done. Yeah, but that's a fair point. I mean, look at what happened with Greg Chappell mm. when when he had the uh, audacity to drop Surav Ganguly. Yeah, but I mean, on current form, there is. There's no way you can say that Laxman could have, should have survived for these eight tests. There is no way that you can say that um, uh, Rohit Sharma shouldn't have been given a test debut before the end of the Australian series. I mean, and that's, that's the surprising thing about it all is, is that it's, a, you know, you're down 3-0, it's a dead game basically. Mm. Wouldn't you want to experiment in these situations and find out, you know, find out a little bit about your kids? I mean, the thing about Virat Kohli is, is that he's now gone at this stage from strength to strength since toughing it out and yeah. making a century in Adelaide. Yeah. So I just, yeah, it, the, you get stuck with these things. Like the, the long-term vision, some of the times that these people have, it, it, it worries you a little bit. I mean, I see a lot of kind of where Australia were at maybe two or three years mm. ago with where India are right now. and. Yeah. 
I mean, it pr- took a pretty significant overhaul of the, the structure and system to, to get Australia back on track. Mm, and I, but I think it was a willingness to take that advice. I mean, you know, after the Ashes lost, where I think for the first time in... So 70 odd years or so they had three well it was the first time ever in a national series that they'd have three innings defeats in a series they said we're going to have an Argus review and we're going to we're going to completely overhaul the system and I think that willingness to sort of say we're going to completely change change the system and, and listen to these these external auditors that they have now been able to turn things around whereas I think India have have taken the complete opposite stance. They've come out after this series and said, no, we're not going to have a review of our performances and we're not going to have an overhaul or a complete change. We're just going to throw Duncan Fletcher to the wolves because we can. <laughs> well, and, and the, yeah, I mean, the other thing with him is that I think they've, they've muted him, basically. They've said, look, you're a fan of the, of the DRS, but you're not allowed to talk about it. And it, it just, it almost seems like he's the BCCI puppet, right? Yeah, now, well, he's actually being there on his own. Well, he's, he's, the, easy, he's the easy target. He's, yeah. he, will, he, he will invariably, unfortunately, be the, sca- be the scapegoat right. for this. But, yeah. I mean, that, the performance thing, I think that the thing that's worth talking about with regards to the Argus review, when you look at Australia's record in the test matches since that's come through, Dave, They've drawn a series in South Africa where they didn't have a monumental mm. brain fade yeah. for a session. That result could have been very, very different. Yeah. They had a similar brain fade in the New Zealand series, which cost them a test match as well, but they've won four straight against India now. Yep. You'd have to argue that the direction that they're taking now appears to be the right one. Look, I think the biggest problem for Australia is their batting, because I think well, Ricky Ponting and Michael Hussey have gotten, as much as it pains me to say it, they're at the stage of their careers now where I don't think they're ever going to be able to dominate top-class bowling lineups again. I still worry very much about David Warner at the top of the order. I think despite the two centuries he's scored this summer, he's still far inconsistent uh, for someone who's coming in um, as an opener. And I think, basically, there's a, right now there's a lot of pressure on Michael Clark to score a lot of runs. And in the India series, he was able to do that, which means we won. Mm. Whereas... I think come come future series that we play with Ponting and Hussey, and I mean Ponting hasn't is yet to make double figures in this one day series. He, he's made he's played four innings, and I believe he's made uh, seven two one and six or, or scores like that, or seven six one and two I think. So he's clearly not in any sort of form, and I think it's almost gotten to the stage where perhaps it's time for him to to retire and make that call himself because. There is no way that he and Hussey are both... There is no way that he and Hussey should both be making it to the next Ashes series, which I think is really where the focus should be. With that in mind, though, who do you see replacing them? Well, this is the biggest problem. That's the argument. The first-class batting order, I guess batting echelon at the moment, there is no one scoring a lot of runs. I mean, Yusman Kawaja has made, I think, three centuries this summer, but his technique has still looked patchy, and I don't believe... He is actually going to earn his place on merit. I think it's more a sake of him being the preordained next in line that's going to get him the gig rather than actually sort of beating down the door through sheer weight of runs, as used to be the requirement for first class cricketers in this country. And I mean, I think that that's the thing that keeps Hussey in Ponting in oh, there. There's, there's no one right now who should be in there ahead of them, I don't think. Yes, and therein lies yeah. the challenge. Yeah. What do you make of Sean Marsh at the moment? Look, I think he got thrown to the wolves a bit this summer. I know you used that, that phrase earlier when we were talking about it. I think 
one ninety nine out of twenty twenty does not does not a good good form base as maketh in terms of getting someone back into the test side. And I think they almost would have been better off picking Kawaja at the start of this series and giving Marsh a chance to play some more first class cricket. That that was the biggest problem was that with the way the um, Australian first class summer is structured at the moment, they had nothing but the BBL on at the time. So they couldn't say to Sean Marsh, okay, go back and play a four-day game to WA, get your eye back in, and then we'll bring you back into the test side. It was like, well, all we've got is 2020, so having made a 99 in one match, well, well, we'll have to bring you back in. Yeah. Do you see him being a long-term option for them, though? I, mean, the, the I think at this stage he's probably at the head of the queue. I mean, when, when you're competing against blokes of the ilk of um, Usman Kawaja and Philip Hughes... Then obviously, I think compared to those two, he'd be at, at the front of the pack. But that's not necessarily a good thing. And for me, that just speaks volumes about the the issues that Australian cricket has at the moment in terms of finding some good middle order batsmen to take over once these current um, elder statesmen, such as Ponting and Hussey, leave the side. Yeah, I know it's you know I I have a little bit of an interesting take on this, and I'm probably alone in saying this. But I can remember back to the dark days of, uh, you know, 85, 86, after, after the Ashes in 85, after the Rebel Tour, where basically the team was Alan Border and Ted Misfits. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam Booney, I guess. Yeah. Well, and they, they made a few big and bold calls at that time. One was picking a certain Stephen Roger War, who hadn't made a first-class century at that stage, but they said, you know what, this, kid, this kid's got some potential. We're going to ride with him for a little while and see, see what happened. I think they tried that with Phil Hughes. I think that they tried that with Steve Smith. You could see the rationale behind mm. what they were doing. The problem that I have is I reckon that, unfortunately, in those situations, they backed the wrong horse. Yeah. Unfortunately, the guy who I would pick, who I would have thrown in there instead is now injured and will be out for about six months. So that's actually Sean's brother, Mitch. Mm. I, see, I see an enormous amount of potential in him, and I think that he will become a very, very prominent player in Australian cricket in, in the next five to ten years. And John Inverarity has spoken about players who get picked for Australia offering more to the team bucket than they sort of take out. And one of the criticisms they have of Usman Kawaja is that he's very introverted and very much self-involved in that he's not going to sort of be out there in a great uh, addition to the sort of team spirit. Whereas someone like Mitch Marsh, I mean, based on what I've heard about him at the state level, he's you know a prankster, a jokester, a sort of Shane Warne of the side, and he is going to be someone who will really revel in that team ethos and bring a lot to the table as a sort of yeah, I guess a team player. Yeah. I mean, just going back to the selectors, I mean, part of the Argus review is they brought in new selectors. If you were giving the selectors a score out of 10 for the, the test series that's, that have just gone, what would you have scored them? Oh, look, it's hard to be critical. I would say somewhere like an 8, because I think other than perhaps sitting Ricky and, and Mark Hussey down and saying, look, perhaps it's time for one of you to step aside, I think they've done very well. The bowlers they've brought in have all performed exceptionally well. I mean, bringing Hilfi back was something that I was very pleased to see them do, whereas I thought 12 months ago Andrew Hilditch had drawn a red line through that name and said never again, whereas Johnny Verity was prepared to say, look, this guy's been probably the standout bowler at state level this summer. We'll bring him back in. Blokes like um, Peter Siddle again, who performed poorly last season, has come back rejuvenated. And the new recruits they've brought in, such as well Patrick Cummings and also J-Pat, James Patterson, 
have all performed very well. I think the area... When and, and I think, you know, even to a lesser extent, Mitchell Stark's shown mm. some, signs, some certain signs of potential. Well, he's certainly better than the other left armour named Mitchell. So, yeah, so yeah. Let's he's, also, him. he's also doing one other thing that the other Mitchell hasn't done. He's, he's meeting, yeah. swinging the ball yeah. and meeting with <laughs> Wasimakran. So yeah. I, I'd even go a little bit higher than that. I think that perhaps with the exception of the Sean Marsh situation, and you can, you can probably understand the rationale for why they've yeah. done what they've done there, I think that they've picked people based on form. And I think yeah. that that's, you know, that's the best way to approach these things. I mean, Ed Cowan was a very yes. bold selection, but it was a selection that actually really worked for them. And I think particularly given who his opening partner is at the moment, he's yeah. a very good foil for David Warner. If you're going to be playing David Warner, who, let's face it, is probably going to fail one in every six innings, to be generous... And then you want to have someone like Cowan. I mean, that first test innings he played, where Australia were a few wickets down early on, and he basically said, I don't care how many runs I'm going to score. He was 16 not out at lunch. But he had just said, I'm going to make it through to lunch and not expose the next batsman. I thought that was an outstanding innings. And he went on to make, oh, I think it was 64 or 60-odd in that first match. I thought that was the best innings I'd seen him play, actually. And someone like him, yeah, is certainly, with with a David Warner at the top of the order, I think you definitely want that calming, sort of consistent player. He, I would say he is actually the most important player to Australia's structure right now. If he can kick on and become a good test opener and show that he has the ability to score centuries, that's the one thing he needs to do, then he could be a real find for us. Because I think with someone like David Warner opening with him, you definitely need that sort of consistent, I'm never going to make us sort of two down for not many if Warner fails, a uh, player at the top of the order. And I think that the beauty of this is that you actually almost bring another player into the team because it will allow you to bat Watson further down the order. Yeah, which they want Meaning, to meaning yeah. that he, you can use him as a bowler as well. But yeah. I think, you know, the, the funny thing is is that since Mitchell Johnson's gone out of the team, they... They seem to have had absolutely no trouble getting 20 wickets. And, oh, look. and Mickey Arthur has come out and said that in the last couple of days. You know, yeah. The best way to win Test cricket is to get 20 wickets. Harsha Bogler wrote a very good article on Crick Info recently which said if you want to have a sort of a good and bad elements, then you're better off having good bowlers and bad batsmen than having bad bowlers and good batsmen. Because at the end of the day, you can make 700 run in an innings, runs in an innings, but if you don't have that ability to take 20 wickets, then you're never going to win any test matches. Yeah. So the dilemma at the moment for Australia is probably a better one in that they've got a very good bowling attack and great depth in their bowling as well and that there are a lot of good bowlers right now who are not getting a game, whereas the batsmen are probably you know, the, the weaker link in the side. And I think you'd much rather have that dilemma than say, look, we've got guys who can make... Plenty of first innings hundreds, but we don't know how we're going to take wickets in that first yeah. innings. Which seems to be kind of where India are yeah, at right exactly. now. And yeah, the, the problem you have is when the batsmen fail, you, you pretty much fall over like a house of cards. Yeah. I mean, the bowling depth is, is impressive. If you were picking a team tomorrow, assuming they were all fit, who'd be the four bowlers you'd pick? Oh, it's a very good question, isn't it? I mean, for me, and this could be slightly biased, but... I would always pick Ben Hilfenhaus. He is my favourite bowler in Australia right now. Because I think... And, I mean, this ties back into the whole the ashes are the most important thing we are preparing for. And first morning, England, day one, session one, who do you want to be bowling? 
is Ben it's, it's Ben Hilfenhaus, and that's because he has the ability to move the ball in the air, to swing it both ways, and to take top order wickets. So he would be my number one. I would then pick Ryan Harris because based on his strike rate, you can't afford to not pick him. Now, he is someone who is very injury prone, so it's good that we have the depth that we do, but he is definitely someone who you want in there. And the third guy, and look, the third guy, and this may surprise some, but it's one Peter Siddle. And the reason I don't pick Patrick Cummings is because I think he is slightly overrated, I have to say. He has played in one test match, one test match. Now, as, as well as he performed in that match, seven wickets, scored the winning runs, man of the match and all that, I still don't think, given the current depth of Australian bowling, I still don't think it, it's the time to be sort of talking about him as the, you know, the chosen one of Australian cricket until 2020 because at this stage he has to show that he can reproduce those, sort of, those sorts of performances well, that sort of performance, in you know, a myriad of conditions and against all the different top batsmen in the world. Whereas Pete Siddle this summer, he just outperformed himself to the nth degree. I mean, I thought before this summer, he was just someone who would always try hard, always give 100%, but he just wasn't that good a bowler. Whereas this summer, he proved me wrong because he consistently took wickets at key moments for the side he owned Tendulkar and Dravid in particular this summer, and I think he was probably the main reason that we won that series 4-0. His performance this summer was the standout performance for me. So no James Pattinson? No. <laughs> in general, no. It's a big... Look, I would rather him play than Nathan Lyon, but yeah, I think yeah. you, all, you always have to choose a spinner. Yeah, okay. So it, it's, it's a very tough call, I admit that. And I think if, if I were to be completely subjective about it, he'd probably get the nod ahead of Hilfie. But Ben Hilfenhaus has long been my favourite bowler because of his ability to swing the ball. And after this summer, where he took, uh, I think, 27 wickets in four tests, and he became, he, he was two wickets away from becoming only the second Australian bowler of all time to take seven wickets in four consecutive matches. I think I would give him the nod. Ryan Harris, you have to have in there based on his um, ability to take wickets. And Peter Siddle, as I say, purely based on his performance this summer, would just yeah. get the nod. But having said that, look, J-Bat is probably the, the best 12th man <laughs> in, in world cricket right now if he's not going to get a game. Yeah, I mean, I guess that just shows the, uh, the challenge mm. in, in doing that particular exercise. One other thing I noted, I mean, we talked about England and Pakistan briefly mm-hmm. before. DRS coming into play. I noticed that through that entire three-game series, there was a record number of LBW 43. decisions. Yeah, 43 LBWs, which equaled the record which had been set in a five-match series. <laughs> DRS? Look, I'm against it, and this is purely because I dislike the way in which it has undermined the, I guess, the authority of the on-field umpires. I don't like this whole element of, look, we're going to challenge the umpire's decision and, and, and question it blatantly. I prefer to see the umpires maintain that, that authority and that unquestioned power to, to make the decision themselves. But, look, having said that, given that all the, I think all nine test-playing countries, oh, sorry, nine of the ten with the exception of India, are in support of it. 
there's not much point speaking out against it because I think it's it's inevitable that it will will be adopted in the future across all test matches. Yeah, I mean, I think Sade so, so Edgemail's loving it. Shane Warne's probably sitting there thinking we need to add another 100 wickets <laughs> yeah. onto my tally. I th- and I think there was an interesting comment on Crick Info this week, which was that the umpires have actually become more outers now because of DRS, the way in which it sort of backs up their decision that they're suddenly making, giving uh, decisions now where, you know, the batsman has gotten forward, it's hit them on the front pad a metre and a half outside the crease, but it would have gone in to hit the stumps, whereas in the past there was always that element of if in doubt, give not out. You know, if there's any element of doubt, then the batsman gets the benefit of the doubt. And I prefer to see that rather than, yeah, a lot of decisions. I mean, Kevin Peterson's was probably the best example of that, where it would have just clipped the top of the leg bail, but that becomes umpire's call and therefore it was given out. I guess uh, I t- the other thing I touched on at the start of the uh, the podcast, Jeremy Wynn, thoughts on uh, the the the, wins- the winsation. <laughs> you know, super, super, super Nintendo. There's some, there's some absolutely <laughs> oh, crazy Twitter hashtags in relation to uh, Jeremy Lin, who's uh, who's exploded from pretty much out of nowhere. I will say this much: it is good to see someone who is written off by the fans and the media and the commentators alike. It is good to see someone like that. Um, come back and perform and sort of throw it into everyone's face and say, look, I am good enough to succeed at this level. I mean, it it really is a tremendous story. You've got a guy who wasn't recruited for college, ended up playing at Harvard of all places, so luckily for him he's a smart cookie. I guess that's that's the only thing to say about that. Was on the summer league team at Dallas. Uh, Dallas wanted him to, didn't think he was quite ready for the M- the NBA yet, so they waived him. He played a year at Golden State last year, but didn't get much playing time. Admittedly, there's a good reason for that because the two guys who were beat in front of him are borderline all stars. Cut by Golden State when they needed to sign a centre. Cut by Houston when they needed to sign a centre. Potentially a little bit of a trend here, but was about to be cut by New York. Was sleeping on teammate Landry Fields' couch has blown up to be the next big thing. It is an amazing story. It really is. And it's the type of thing that, you know, makes you want to follow sport. Yeah. It's the underdog story. It is the underdog. Everyone loves to see. Absolutely. I'm not quite there yet in terms of getting on the bandwagon. There's a couple of things that concern me. I mean, he's playing for a coach who has a system that is very, very friendly to point guards. So you have to take that into account. Steve Nash played with this coach and won two MVPs. Chris Duhon, of all players, was actually a reasonable point guard in this system when he struggled pretty much everywhere else. Raymond Felton looked like an all-star last year in this system as well. So I think that the system certainly rewards point guards who can do something about it. He could be a function of the system. My arguments about Tom Brady in terms of him being the greatest quarterback of all time is that he's only ever played for one coach in one system. And I think that that certainly helps you out. Whereas some of these other great quarterbacks have had to play for multiple coaches in multiple different systems. I think Elway had four or five different coaches throughout his career. I think that it's the sign, you know, a sign of a great player is the ability to be able to adapt to the conditions that are put forward in front of them. So, the How old is he, by the way? He would only... I think he's 23. Oh, he's so only he's two years out... Years two, two years out of college, yeah. so he's not... 
he's certainly it's certainly at the very early stages of his career at this stage. The, so he's not know, like a Michael Barlow where you say he's come late to the party. Well, not really, no. It's not it's not quite like that. I mean his pathway is a little bit unique. Mm. I mean a lot of the elite players are getting drafted at eighteen and nineteen yeah, years old. Yeah. So it's much like what's happened in the AFL. He's kind of fallen through the cracks a little bit. So the other concern that I really have about him is, is that he's he's been a pretty significant turnover machine as well. Mm. Whilst he's scoring, he's been scoring a lot and he's been dishing off a lot of assists. He also has had a lot of turnovers. That will probably improve over time. However, I mean that could that's just a function of being relatively new to the system and new to all of these other things. But being the first. I think he's Chinese American. I can't remember if he's Chinese American or Taiwanese American right now. But being the first person, of, essentially of Asian American descent, to succeed in the league, it's it's a big story. And quite rightly, they've been, you know on the back of his performances over the last week or so and all of the buzz, he's now included in the All Star festivities in the next couple of weeks. So it's a great story. It is a great story. Yeah, you yeah. love to hear these stories of these guys who've been sort of yeah written off and yeah as I say it's the underdog story which you yeah. always like to see yeah I mean a lot of a lot of comparisons have been made to uh, with Jeremy Lin and somebody who's actually quite close to my heart being a Broncos supporter Mr Tim Tebow uh, the the Tebow thing's a bit it's I, whilst I can understand the comparisons I see a lot of different differences there as well I mean Tebow's somebody who wins ugly Lin wins pretty mm. Um, winning time, you know, <laughs> all these, as I say, there's, there's all these ridiculous good yeah. hashtags. I'd love, to, I'd love to have all the hashtags, that are, you know, winning time, all we do is win, uh, win sanity, super Nintendo, uh, it's crazy. I love that super Our, uh, one. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Your, um, your friend of mine, Dave Sidarov, who's a diehard Knicks fan, he'd be having an absolute oh, ball no. right about now. So, it's a great story for for, for Knicks, Knicks fans, and yeah, it's. I mean, if 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 you're ever on TV and you're watching ESPN, Jeremy Wynn over the last couple of weeks, he's basically been on there every 15 minutes. <laughs> so, great stories, great stories. Someone worth watching. Someone worth watching. So you know, with a, with a high with Jeremy Wynn being a winner, there's uh, there's always a loser in sport, and I guess the loser this week was probably the West Coast Eagles with. Uh, News that uh, star forward Mark Lecrae has torn his anterior cruciate ligament and he's uh, done for the year. Yeah, look, I I have to admit, when I heard that news, I almost sort of wrote them off for this season. I mean, in terms of... Uh, we were discussing this earlier. In terms of how important certain players are to their structure, there are blokes like Dean Cox and Darren, Dean Cox and Darren Glass who are more irreplaceable, but... To be perfectly frank, I would I would rate Mark McCrae as the best player at the West Coast Eagles right now, and I think he is, his injury has certainly dealt them a serious blow when it comes to trying to back up their um, their preliminary final effort, uh, flashing the pan as some people might say uh, from last season. I think they will definitely now struggle to have a similar sort of impact uh, in this season. Well, I mean, I'm a die-hard Eagles supporter. I've been a member since, well, pretty much forever. And I probably wasn't predicting them to have as much success anyway. Yeah. Uh, they had the... To be, to be fair and to be blunt, let me 
first we go on the record and say that the West Coast Eagles 2011 team is the team that probably gave me the most satisfaction ever, and that's including the, the three teams that won premierships. I mean, they actually had a record which surpassed some of their premierships mm. years in the home and away season. Yeah. Um, well, that's right. I mean, they were saying any other year, I think, the Hawthorne and West Coast teams last year who finished third and fourth, they were saying in any other year those teams would have actually finished on top of the ladder. In fact, I think West Coast last year equaled the most number of wins they had had in a home and away season, including the three years where they'd won the premiership. Uh, they had 19, I think, in 2000... Uh, sorry, in uh, 1991. Oh, OK. I think, uh, apart from that particular year, mm. I think it was their best year. Yeah. So, I mean, from that from that perspective, it, it just goes to show you... I mean, coming from, coming from where they came from, I think that that was the big thing. But having said that, last year was the perfect storm for the Eagles. Mm. They had virtually no injuries. Lacroix missed some games. McKenzie missed some games. Daniel Kerr was in and out of the team for most of the year, but their core played 21 or 22 games. So they were very lucky on that front. And the draw was certainly stacked in their favour. I do remember chatting with uh, you and a couple of other people in February, making the bold prediction that I thought they could make the eight and getting laughed at. But also at the same time saying I thought that if all things fell into place, they could have started the year seven and two. Yeah. I think Uh, they were six and three. And they should have beaten Sydney. In well, that they, game where Adam Goods basically ran amok for the last quarter. And from memory, they should have beaten Sydney. They were certainly in a position to beat Hawthorne and probably would have beaten them if the game went for another five minutes. That's right. Yeah. As I much mean, as I hate saying that phrase, but... But if Dean Cox hadn't dropped that... I mean, I remember watching that game as as a as an Eagles and a Hawthorne fan and thinking if Dean Cox doesn't drop that kick from Embley, which would have been a goal from the boundary then, yeah, it's hard to see Hawthorne hanging on to win that game. And even the one against Essendon early on as well, they, they looked very good in that well, game too. They should have, I mean, they're only two goals up at half yeah. time against Essendon. They probably should have been six the way mm. the game was being played. Yeah. And they played one bad quarter against Essendon and it came back to bottom in the butt. But I think that that's the thing that that just goes to show. And everybody's kind of looking around this year and saying, well, who's going to be the West Coast Eagles of 2011? And that's a discussion that I'll probably have at another time, but I have two candidates who I think are a really good chance to, to really jump up out of nowhere. On that note, yeah. we, uh, I think, you know, that's our, that's our wrap, and this is a wrap, so we will we'll speak to you next time. So goodbye from me. Goodbye, world. Now leaving the Vlog Pod.